Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Reservoir Dogs, starring Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, and Michael Madsen, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films, continuing on our mostly single location film cast with a look at from 1992 Reservoir Dogs. Talking about Tarantino again. Last time we did this, it was interesting. No fisticuffs <laughs> on set today. No fisticuffs. <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, why don't you go ahead and pour us some more of that. Uh, this is the High West Yippie Kai Yay. There you go, amigo. Thank you very much. Welcome. But yeah, it's going to be exciting to talk about Tarantino and his first directorial effort. Uh with Reservoir Dogs. I hadn't seen this movie in probably about seven years. It's been, been a while for me. Longer for it, me. Yeah, I don't watch this one as frequently as I watch some of the other ones. But no, it was, it was good to see it again. And we're going to talk all about the story and him and just that kind of the craziness that that is this story. But cheers. Cheers. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to start the episode. And let's go ahead and just get this thing going. That's a cool song. Beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a perfect, like, let's walk in tandem oh, yeah. type song. I think I've seen so many videos of, like, groomsmen, like, recreating this, like, sequence <laughs> like <laughs> with the groom. Right. Excellent. Talking about Tarantino again. When we last, we did Jackie Brown, Inglorious Bastards, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And in that episode, we talked a lot about his craft. You know, I like to call them the Tarantino tropes of soundtrack dialogue mm-hmm. violence, violence. etc right um and we kind of went back to like what questions did we ask then and to try and mix it up again for this episode i guess we haven't really talked about like our favorite dialogue sequences from tarantino's films this film obviously starts out with three really good ones like right off the bat and we can just kind of narrow that down from like any number of his films there's such a plethora to to pick from so matt what's your favorite Let's just call it like a dialogue exchange, dialogue sequence from one of his films. You know, I'm assuming we're going to kick out the like a virgin bit in this one. Yeah, yeah. Just because that's too on the nose. But you know what else struck me today through this? There were two others in this film that are maybe not quite as well publicized as the like a virgin bit by Mr. Brown, Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. But the Steve Buscemi is Mr. Pink in his philosophy on tipping yeah that's great and then the not sam jackson sam jackson teaching mr pink how to tell a story mm-hmm. and then the indulgence of that story those are equally those as are good, good. Mm-hmm. so right away we're in the space that tarantino succeeds but i'm not going to pick either of those i'm going to go to film number two okay and we decided that we would name this for lack of a better term the walk the earth rebirth of jules winfield mm-hmm. uh it's an interesting character arc, and I would also contend that Sam Jackson as Jules Winfield might be Tarantino's most important character yeah. in all of his films. We can debate that someday and, and you, get into that. You can kind of wonder, too, if those 
gangsters, those two characters, him and um, Vincent, Vincent Vega. Vega. Vincent Vega. Vincent Vega uh, are cut from the same gangster cloth of this film. They're even dressed in the same attire. Well, we had that talk. Yeah. There's, and we'll get into it as the movie unfolds. Mm-hmm. But back to that specific sequence, after everything that has unfolded and Marvin's been shot in the face and we've had all of the things that have occurred in that film and they're sitting there in that ridiculous Sunday softball best practice dad just got out of the garden gear, the banana slugs and whatever the heck they're wearing. That's great. For Jules to come to that point of view being as hardened a mofo as he has self-proclaimed himself to be even on his gun Mm -hmm. is an interesting arc to Mm. say the least yeah and i think it showcases when he's organic and at his best and not trying to do the character of his organic dialogue Mm -hmm. we did quite a bit on that in um once upon a time Mm -hmm. how good he can be yeah that sequence is is mine and it took a while to get there there's plenty of other places that we could have entered i'd forgotten how good that bushimi philosophy on tipping bit was yeah but this walk the earth, Jules Winfield, like Kane and Kung Fu. Get into adventures and shit. <laughs> is brilliant. I like how that conversation starts because they're sitting there eating breakfast. And he's like, he's like, well, ba- uh, Vincent Van's like, well, bacon's good. He's like, I don't eat pig. Pig's a filthy animal. I don't eat animals that squalor in filth. <laughs> right. And then that leads into this whole conversation about this epiphany they had of not being killed. Um in with with Brent and Brent's little drug buster, like whatever happens there in that sequence, I lo- I love it. That that's really and then how that whole scene plays out with him and Tim Roth again, right? Uh, yeah, that's and that's how the film ends. But it's like the middle of the movie too, which is interesting. It all comes full circle for that character. That movie is a, a level of brilliance unto its own that could lead into I think a question we'll get to in the nightcap a little bit. But <clears throat> is that also the curse of of Tarantino? Yep, definitely. Because it, it might be. He walks the same path as Shyamalan almost. Like, yeah. It's too good, too early. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Again, I don't want to give away the nightcap, but we'll, I'll yeah. reference back to later what I meant by this. Sure. What's yours? Like, I so many to pick from. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in Hateful Eight that I like. I like that little bit with it's Samuel Jackson. He's talking about this letter that he has from President Lincoln. And then Daisy Domergue spits on, and it's like, and then the, the letter comes back, and it's not even really written. By, it was just something he made up. That's good. I like the little Delphonics bit in Jackie Brown yep. between Robert Forster and Pam Greer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Inglorious Bastard, Mansoor Lapidit, and Hans Landa there at the table. It's a big 20 minute one. I have to go from the same movie as you, mm. but I'm actually going to go the Vincent Vega, Mia Wallace date at Jackrabbit Slims. Yeah. I'd have to pull my stopwatch out in time at the next time. It's got to be at least a 20 minute sequence. That Mamie Van Doren bit's brilliant. <laughs> that is not Mamie Van Doren. Uh, that is Mamie Van Doren. That is Marilyn Monroe. And I don't see Jay Mansfield here, but she must have the night off. Yeah, like, so that's so the Douglas Sirk steak, like Doug, <laughs> like that is just Amos and a- the, the milkshakes, uh, Martin and Lewis and all that. The restaurant, Steve Buscemi comes back as Buddy Holly waiter but they talk about Fox Force 5, the show, which is essentially Kill Bill when you really break that show down. Right. And the talk about uh, the guy that uh, Marcellus Wallace uh, like paralyzed because uh, he gave me a foot massage. Like, There's so much going on, and it's all capped off with that great dance sequence. Sequences like that shouldn't be as entertaining on film. Like Those are usually a slog and a bore, but those two together and the way they just rattle off that dialogue makes that 
one of the most entertaining sequences of that entire movie. Writing wise, it's an inspiration to try to find an ability to through dialogue have action occurring on that intellectual level. There's mm-hmm. no fighting or arguing. It's not conflict. It's people talking. <laughs> but in a really int- interesting conversation, in a darker way, that Seinfeld did the same thing. Sure, yeah. Like it's talking about, about nothing. No, no, yeah, notes about nothing, yeah. I, I don't know if the genius of Like a Virgin is Mr. Brown's take or that someone would continually have that introspective a look into it but to take that dialogue bit and then leave the listeners or the watchers of the film thinking about that whether it's accurate and how did that person get there and these are all fictitious elements Mm -hmm. what that does to me when it's done well in his films is create a level of subtext and depth in the character that gives them a three-dimensionality or fourth-dimensionality on screen. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll get into what that looks like as he moves through it. Sure. But um, in these early well, stages, well, it's well, beautiful. We did a number on that in the last cast too. Right. And we covered, it was interesting. We kind of covered something from the middle later career and then his most current release in that one. Uh, I'd be remiss too, if I didn't mention Christopher Watkins watch story. To that was li- close for me to too. little Butch Coolidge. Yeah, it's fantastic. That's really good. Well, Pulp this Fiction shoved so far up his ass in his ass. <laughs> And walking, and Chris, and it's Christopher walking, right? Kill Bill has some great ones. I also thought about the one between her and Vivica Fox in the kitchen. The one that I thought about was her and um, Bill, mm-hmm. bef- like in his living room, yeah, um, and sort of her upbringing, and uh, that bit was not in the garden mm-hmm. prior to the garden, yeah. I also like the one from Death Proof when he when Kurt Russell rolls up to Butterfly and says like you're actually a little damaged because no one's approached you tonight. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of spins her. There's no nothing more uh, beautiful than a bruised eagle on a winged like angel or something. Like he just like gets that. And he's like, how about that lap dance? <laughs> yeah. D- Django Unchained has some pretty good ones too there. Uh, uh, but yeah, as, as, as he kind of gets on his career, they get definitely get a little more, uh, more long, long winded than some of these other ones, like the Steve Buscemi one in this one's real short but real to the point, but I don't think the, the, the tone of them changes. It's like really enveloped ways of how people talk in these movies, which no one else gets to do. The dialogue pieces that you and I are referencing, I have a quick story about this mm-hmm. became such a standard trope in the early two thousands post pulp fiction that when I was helping put the people together for the screenwriting conference and mm-hmm. bring them out yeah. as the, um, you know, the pitch element. Yeah. I specifically remember two of the producers one year coming out and in the bios that we put in the pamphlets or the programs that went home and what the producers were looking for. It specifically said anything that is not Quentin Tarantino esque table talk dialogue. It's unsellable. Because no one else could do it, and it became such a common trope among the spec writing class or whomever that it got overdone. Uh, And it was actually the gal from Tarantino's company in those early days that did, I'll be damned if I can remember her name. It'll come to me. Sure. And she specifically said, look, I'll come to the conference and take pitches, but if anybody's going to try to pitch me on what I've been developing from him, I don't want to hear it because I can't take another one of these discussions at the table about a rock video. He's certainly gifted in the way he does it. For a time. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, 
And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention from his non-directed film, but the Sicilian scene from True Romance. Oh, yeah, sure. Christopher Walken again. How about that? <laughs> your, your pot eggplant. <laughs> <laughs> all right, to those good yeah, choices. Yeah, those are, those, those are really good. Yeah, you could go on and on with all, all of those great dialogue sequences. But let's literally start the episode with the one that started all. And it's almost apt that it is Mr. Tarantino giving it himself. Doing himself. <laughs> Doing himself. What the fuck was I talking about? So True Blue was about a guy, uh, such a girl who meets a nice guy, but like a virgin was a metaphor for big dicks. Okay, let me tell you what like a virgin's about. It's all about this coos who's a regular fuck machine. Now I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. So one day she meets this John Holmes motherfucker, and it's like, whoa, baby. I mean. This cat is like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. That's my favorite. <laughs> Charles Bronson is digging tunnels. <laughs> but this is the introduction to this film, but also us to Quentin Tarantino. And he's obviously going on about the song Like a Virgin. I like the way this scene is shot, just kind of panning around all these guys. And just you kind of just get like the spotlight of like whoever's speaking and the reaction shot. It's a really unique way to kind of stage a sequence like this and then out of the corner of this year you you hear Lawrence Tierney Toby who the fuck is Toby Toby Wong <laughs> just, there's a lot going on here and it's like up to the viewer to like really kind of pay attention on like what the focus is from a screenwriting point of view I think this is a little bit revolutionary to rebellious mm-hmm. if you have a bunch of people around the table talking then probably it's some exposition that helps explain what the character's are about or who they are or motives. And in effect, this does the same thing, but it does it as a group. It's not a conversation you would expect before a bunch of robbers pulled off a jewel heist. Now, is that right? When they leave, they're going right to it. That's what I think. That's how I imagine it too. I mean, they're dressed the way, I mean, Mm -hmm. so I'm assuming yes. Yeah. So there is a camaraderie amongst them and it's sort of hard to the- kind of theorize who the leader is. It almost feels like it's Mr. Brown because he's leading the dialogue. Sure. In this. Mm-hmm. And that maybe Mr. Pink Bushimi is kind of the agent that might be the disruptive force because he won't put in the dollar. Sure. Um, but frankly, neither of those are accurate. And mostly what the purposes of this bit are, are simply to humanize what's going to be a wildly inhuman group for the rest of the Mm, film. Well said. That's different. Like I never have an officially taken a writing class at some collegiate level. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that this was exactly what they told you not to do. Oh yeah. If you're going to, you don't have six heads around a table talking Mm because that's boring. Yeah. Show it. Don't say it. Mm -hmm. And it's, the genius of Tarantino early on, I think, in his career, mm-hmm. which he found a way to say, unless you can do it really, really well like this, and nobody had really done that. Sure, yeah. So a landmark scene, as I said, inspired a generation of writers that tried to do the same thing. I don't think anyone's ever been able to do it nearly as well. And to that, it's also a curse. Yeah. Because we talked about it once upon a time in Hollywood when DiCaprio's talking to that little girl. Mm-hmm. That seemed organic yeah. and sincere, mm-hmm. whereas as he moved through his career, it became forced. And I think to have that 
discussion amongst the heads at the table. It's inside of you. Yeah. There's only so many of those. Well, this seems and you use them up. Like you write what you know. Yeah. He's just out of ammo. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. That, you were the, say no, that's that that's probably true. Because you throw in a lot of reference. Charles Bronson, John Holmes, yeah. Madonna, True Blue. <laughs> Uh, all Papa the, Don't Preach is yeah, the result of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is probably about eight minutes long, and in that you get the the Like a Virgin bit, then you get Nice Guy Eddie uh, talking about K. Billy Super Sounds of the 70s, which is like the DJ overseeing the soundtrack of the film, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Mr. Pink's uh, No Tipping philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so you, they're all kind of quick little vignettes within this little, little scene, but it yeah, really sets the stage for these really kind of despicable people and kind of how they interplay it. I always love that line by uh, Mr. White, Harvey Keitel, when he said, you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. Like, yeah, that's really good. But you, it, it introduces the players. It introduces the the vernacular that a lot of his films are going to have, the way people talk, uh, almost kind of saying something, then kind of repeating it again for the audience that wasn't there, which is the character in this instance. Yeah, I like I like the introduction to this film a lot. Me too. And then right from that to uh, Little Green Bag, as they walk out, we introduce to our cast. And then to go from playful banter about this, 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 and that to this. The doctor's going to fix you up. And you're going to be okay. Now say it. You're going to be Okay. Say it! You're gonna be okay! Say the goddamn words! You're gonna be okay! Say the goddamn fucking words! Say it! Oh, okay, Larry. Correct! This scene's always been interesting to me because it's A, troubling, B, Tim Roth is not a bad actor, but it almost seems like he's, like, not great in the scene, but that's not true either because what he's really tapping into is what someone that got shot in this in the gut would actually probably go through. And like it, the, his reactions, visceral and raw and real. And I think to go from the sounds of a uh, little green bag, and then it bleeds into the, the credits and then to hear that banter and then to open the, the next portion of the film with that obvious time passage. What do you, what do you think of this kind of going from that to the heist then we never actually see the heist to to this moment here. Getting in late, talk about that a lot. So the the cask is single location, and mostly this is. Mm-hmm. Finding a way to do it that's interesting without the aid of set or changing locations is a trick. The <clears throat> holy grail in writing. Yeah. Or just in story for sales and what producers are looking for and high concept ideas and all that. Mm-hmm. The interesting approach in this is secondarily to the theft itself, which would be an interesting watch. The other conflicted piece would be where you go waiting for the fence. Dog Day Afternoon kind of plays this Mm. out a little bit too. Mm -hmm. But if you can't show the actual duel then the next best thing is what the effects of the duel are and uncovering or debriefing what went wrong. And that's pretty smart. Mm -hmm. I don't think that this is 
as compelling as watching them pull off the heist would be because there's going to be guns and fighting and and all of that stuff that we're used to. But what's smart about it is it's almost, we bagged on prequels a lot in this. Mm-hmm. We're skipping the prequel, which would be the heist, yeah. to get to the present, which is what happened afterwards. And that's a trick. That was an interesting way to get to a scene. And it's not entirely, but mostly get to that entirely single location. Definitely. And do you like that? Or you, I mean, oh, and, yeah. then, and then the, I, the I sequencing think, you brought up, I, I think it's great. I, I think it helps the film out sure. actually. Uh, Tarantino always said that, that there was always plans to shoot the actual heist, but you know, one point what, whatever million budget, there was just no money to film a high scene if anything i think not showing it helps this film out immensely because then it takes on this you can i can always kind of picture what the heist looks like in my mind sure. while watching this film i don't even know what the interior of that looks like but i just have such a clear image and that's done through dialogue that's done by how they explain what happened mr blonde went in like a maniac and just started shooting people like who hires someone like that i can picture like how it played out it was a shit show right uh and then and then you almost kind of get that uh that 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 kind of hitchcock suspense in this thing here of the the elephant in the room that we don't quite get to see but the way the aftermath is played with Orange laying there dying, Mr. White and Mr. Pink kind of jawing at each other to try to figure out what's going on here. Someone's a rat. Uh, yeah, I think it, I think it plays out nicely. To help that out too, I think Bushimi's great. Oh my gosh, I was I wanted to say that while we were watching it, but it's just yeah, he's him and Harvey Keitel are really good in this movie. Um. And and we can get into what Steve Buscemi's career became and what it didn't become. And from everything of like the, the brilliance of Boardwalk Empire to the decade of just miss after miss after miss. In some ways, he reminds me a lot of Crispin Glover. A little bit, yeah. And that's like what could have been and you could see it. And we just never really ascended to that monumental place in film that sure. maybe had as much to do with his looks if you take Reservoir Dogs and Fargo, mm-hmm. tell me how Steve Buscemi yeah. didn't make movie after movie after movie because he's clearly talented. Mm-hmm. And those two characters are kind of similar in some ways. Yeah. But then you see Nucky Thompson in Boardwalk Empire, mm-hmm. and that's an entirely different character. Sure. I, I It's puzzling to me. But the other puzzlement to me, because Harvey Keitel was pretty established and was the name at this time. Mm-hmm. Well, he was actually who discovered this thing. Yeah. Can okay. I can I explain a little Go, bit? Oh yeah, about please that? run. Yeah. As we talk about, it, it's hard to make a movie in Hollywood, but equally harder to just like get your foot in the door and even it's all who you know. Like it about that. So as we've talked about with a lot of filmmakers, whether it's Spielberg, Lucas, John Carpenter, well established directors that have went to some sort of film school, UCA a USC, UCLA, Columbia, all those all those big ones. Tarantino didn't. He actually just worked at a video store and he just a constant student of of film, just watching, 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 and just kind of taking. And we talked about is is it more thieving of ideas or is it more paying homage to? And we had that whole debate the last time we talked about him, but like he had just such a, a vernacular of filmmaking style, film genre, film everything that when he sat down to write and then decided to step into the director's chair. He even said at one time that I was there was probably maybe the grip or the cinematographer was probably a better director than me, but no one knew that story better than I did. 
And that was actually my strength on that first film. It got me through that. So Lawrence Bender, his buddy, uh, Bender Spink, Bender Spink, exactly, uh, gave this screenplay and Tarantino planned to shoot it 30,000 budget with his buddies. And it was going to be just a 16 millimeter film, like pretty crude. Uh, Bender gives it to his acting coach who then gives his acting acting coach gives it to his wife who knew Harvey Keitel. So someone of a someone, and then it lands in the right person's hand. Right. And he reads it, loves it. It was like, Hey guys, I'll help you put together the financing. They put together this one point, whatever budget, uh, and they jump right into this thing. And it's a low budget film, but I don't think it, it suffers from, from that at all. And literally Tarantino's career is launched by, Bender just gave it to the right person to read. <laughs> right. Literally. You just need one yes. Yes. I don't know about their filmography. You probably looked this up. Mm. It's got to be close to Bashimi's and Madsen's first appearance on screen, right? Mm-hmm. If not, it's yeah. got to be close. Very close. I mean, they might have been extra like street thug or something like that. But I mean, first and featured. I think, I think Tim Roth too. Okay, so that's the other thing I wanted to get to. So we talked about Bashimi and Kaitel. Mm-hmm. You brought it up a minute ago and we didn't get a chance to get into it too much. If we're talking about the arc of the actor mm-hmm. career wise, mm-hmm. has what Tim Roth has become post this and pulp fiction to what he is now, did it suit what you saw him being able to do in the backseat bleeding out after he'd been shot in the stomach? I'm glad you brought that up because when I was watching, I was like, and we have this conversation a lot too. I was like, man, Tim Roth was one or two rolls away from like blowing it up. Huge. Yeah. I agree. Big time. Yep. And honey bunny. Yeah. Like it just, maybe it's role choice or just one of the most prominent things I remember him in. And you wouldn't even know it's him because he's so good in it, but he's covered in makeup is general Thade in the Marky Mark planet of the apes. Oh wow. He's the villain in that. And he's incredible, but you don't even know that's him. Like he's literally covered under makeup, mm-hmm. whether it's that or uh, was that show? He was on lie to me. Oh, yeah. Lie to me. Right. Mm-hmm. I think he had a pretty Whoops. interesting career, but. I don't even know if it's a swing and a miss. It's just, he was just one or two away from really blowing up. Well, let's think about that then. Let's play it out. Mm. So let's take the three characters. Then let's not do high ke- height Harvey Keitel. He's pretty established okay. and continued. I mean, smoke is a miss and whatever. Okay. Yeah. Let's not get into that. If you take Madsen, okay. Bushimi, and Roth. Okay. And in this film, I would contend and career-wise, Madsen is the least talented of those three. Okay. I'm not saying he's bad. No, yeah. Are any of them in 2020 in our minds in the spectrum of Hollywood rankings and male actors where they should have been based on what you saw in this film? Probably not. All less or all more? All less. I think so too. Mm -hmm. Which is just a shame, you know what I mean? So here's the million dollar question then. We've spent a lot of time talking about what a great writer Tarantino is. Mm -hmm. Are they good? because of Tarantino mm. and giving them good material mm. or are they good because they took good material and delivered it well? Can I say a little bit of both? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. you sure. Cause I think it's one thing for the writer to be just on point and Tarantino's a very stickler of not really improvising like a lot of read my dialogue the way I write it. So, okay. But I think it takes a certain type of actor to read his dialogue. We talked about Christoph Waltz and Samuel Jackson were put on this earth to read his words and yeah, maybe it's just like the perfect combination. Because I would say the same about Robert Forrester, very B-movie actor his whole career, and he's great as Max Cherry. Amen. Yeah. 
So, okay, like, I think I agree with you, and here's the argument I'm going to give, which is another actor, and that's Sam Jackson. Okay. In this film, mm -hmm. we meet the Sam Jackson before Sam Jackson, and I don't have enough money to get Sam Jackson. Mm -hmm. Sam Jackson is who he is because of two people, Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino, yep. period. Yep. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do the right thing and pull fiction. Mo Betta Blues, yep. I, I mean, mm -hmm. Jungle Fever, mm -hmm. like all that. Um, in this film, when Tim Roth is learning how to tell the lie that's going to be like kind of the turning point in this film, he learns it from another undercover cop who is essentially Sam Jackson doing Sam Jackson. If you go back to that bit when they're on the rooftop, the lines that that guy is delivering, I think you're looking up his name right now, right? Mm -hmm. The lines that that guy is delivering are Sam Jackson lines. Oh yeah. But it's not Sam Jackson. So if we're contending that it's pretty good dialogue that plays and really plays in the hands of somebody that's talented, which I think is the case that you made an agreement in for me, maybe that character is proof of such. Sure. And it's not like that guy's bad in there. No, 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 not yeah. bad. But like mostly unforgettable. Mostly, I say unforgettable. Mostly forgettable. Yeah. What's his name? Uh, Hol Holiday. And? Holiday. Randy Brooks. Did he have anything after that? Let's see. I just think if you come, that's Sam Jackson's role. That is, that mm -hmm. is, that's Jules Winfield. Sure. But it's not Jules Winfield. Yeah. Cause maybe Jules Winfield is still rather unrefined and they haven't had that great meeting. Harvey Keitel matters a lot to Tarantino. John Travolta matters a lot to Tarantino. Sam Jackson. Uma Thurman. Okay. Yeah. Sam Jackson is Quentin Tarantino's most important actor. And I will take that to my grave. Oh, I, probably no arguments for me. Yeah. It literally helped launch his, because as well, let's just talk about the, the box. This is one point, I think two or $5 million budget. It only made $2 million at the box office. So in the time of this indie movement in Hollywood, I like how you said rebellious, like this opening scene is rebellious to do because that's what these filmmakers, whether it's Kevin Smith and clerks Ah, well said. Good. Soderbergh and Sex Lies and Videotape. Like, films are getting a little more raw again. This Rebels on the Backlot, this mentality of the filmmakers from the 70s, that era we like, and we talked about with Carpenter last week. It's kind of back now around this time. Yeah. And people kind of pushing back a little bit, really kind of expanding the medium, low budget indie companies that are rising through the ranks. And yeah, and then th that's kind of kind of what you get get with this with this sequence of, of events here. Yeah. But as things start to unfold here, and I think it's a it's a morgue because uh, there's a hearse in there, and then it almost looks like an embalming station in that room where uh, Mr. White and Mr. Pinker are talking. Okay. So that's the warehouse that they're in. And just as they try to unveil who this rat is is when the tensions really start flying. You want to fuck with me? I'll show you who you're fucking with. You want to shoot me, you little piece of shit? Go ahead, take a shot. Fuck you, White. I didn't create this situation. I'm dealing with it. You're acting like a first-year fucking thief. I'm acting like a professional. They get him, they could get you. They get you, they get closer to me, and that can't happen. You looking at me like it's my fault? I didn't tell him my name. I didn't tell him where I was from. Shit, 15 minutes ago, you almost told me your name. Your buddy there is stuck in a situation you created. So if you want to throw bad looks somewhere, throw them in a mirror. You kids shouldn't play so rough. Yeah, Steve Buscemi is really, really good in that. Mm -hmm. But it gets to the, the sequence now, and we kind of get everyone up to speed, Mr. Blonde and everybody. And, man, this is this is just the part that kind of really kills. Or like, not, not in a bad way, but, like, it's just always so difficult is when they pull this cop out of the, the trunk of the car, and 
we've obviously established at this point that Michael Madsen's character, without him being in the room, just talking about him, that he's a little unhinged and yeah. he's a little crazy. And he already did his stint in prison, comes back for this job that Joe doesn't even really want him for that job. Uh, we want you for something else, but nice guy, Eddie, uh, as he said in his best Joe Pesci impersonation, and he's pretty good at this movie too, Chris Penn. Uh, but they get him for this job, and he's just the wild card. He just kind of really mucks up the whole situation. In that heightened state that you just played, um, he shows up, and he's sitting there drinking what seems to be a to-go cup from Kahuna Burger. Yep. Um, he had time in between this to go stop off for food. <laughs> and he is... Vincent Vega's brother, like that's mm-hmm. established. Yep. He's unnerved. So calm, so stoic. These guys are freaking out. This guy's over here bleeding out on the ramp. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. It is a, like a funeral parlor. Yeah. Because that explains what those column like things are that are wrapped in that bubble wrap. Yeah, those yeah. are caskets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's playing on a little bit different level. So much so that when the guns pulled on him. Yeah. He barely flinches. He just keeps drinking his soda and just keeps leaning up against that that stanchion. He's so calm. This is like nothing to him. Like maybe a little too familiar and a little too comfortable there. Almost like borderline like psychopath. And we understand that he's maybe just executed four or five people in whatever diamond heist went south. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I guess we have to our eyes the most villainous of villains initially in this film. We have somebody that we are actively rooting against. Can I tell you a funny story? Yeah, please do. It was probably around the time when I took your class and I'm like really starting to like fall into a niche of discovering films and filmmakers. And I came across this film that loved it, of course. Sure. Uh, but then I was like, I was like for movie night, I was like, yeah, let me throw on reservoir dogs for my parents. It was at this point in the movie where like, and I don't even know if they were liking it up to that because they're just, there's a lot of cursing and it's not necessarily like a film you put on for like movie night, like family <laughs> Yeah, no. But when they when he starts torturing the cop, which man, just torture on screen is just it's always rough, regardless. And this film probably holds back a little bit because it pulls away from a lot of the really gratuitous violence. My dad just got up and, and walked out of the room, and I was like, "Oh man, I guess this one isn't playing so well." So, it, like, it was a lesson for me that I was like, "Man, I really need to like consider what I show my parents because film taste and film tolerance is different for everybody." Yeah, sure. Yeah, so. The first time I saw this movie was a rental. Mm-hmm. And um, was it, would you say 92? Mm-hmm. I think I was actually working at a video store at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually it was. And I brought it home one night. And in a kind of Tarantino-esque way, I was sort of exploring not the ETs of the world. Sure. Like Last Picture Show was one I had sort of happened oh. upon at that time. That was and, a good movie. Right, some of that. Mm-hmm. Midnight Cowboy, The Graduate, some of that other stuff. Peter Bogdanovich era, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That era we like so much. Yep. And I think that had I jumped in to the Rebel on the Backlot, raw, rebellious nature on a shoestring budget that he does this, I think it probably would have been off-putting. I'm glad I didn't do that before I did like some Mike Nichols and some Bogdanovich and some of that other stuff. Yeah. Um, It played okay for me, but even then... It was such a strange watch that I had to get comfortable, and the violence played into that too, but I had to get comfortable in what it wasn't going to be before I could really enjoy the movie. 
like I kept waiting, when are they going to leave this location? When is the robot going to show up? Like there was still that piece of me that was tentpole Hollywood blockbuster cinematic spectacle. And this is anything but mm-hmm. save yeah. the violence. Yeah. That's the robot. That's the spectacle. Mm-hmm. And my goodness, no wonder your dad left. <laughs> that's a huge valley to jump over, Jesse. Exactly. Shame on you. Yeah. For your dad. Yeah. To your dad and at least trying to, will he still watch movies with you or oh, is that a deal breaker? No, definitely. Yeah. yeah, we have our films. Right. Just not that one. Not that one. Dad, I got another one. Let's watch Boogie Nights. Well, this, this is crazy. Mom, you'll love this scene. Well, I'll never forget it. It was like when Inglorious came out, my dad like came to me and was like, hey, do you want to go see that Inglorious Bastard? I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to, if we should do that. And I was like, when, so when we went, I was like really nervous the whole time. I was like, man, if it just decides to jump over that cliff and go with the Reservoir Dogs angle, I'm fucked. Like my oh, yeah. dad's going to walk out and I'm going to have to leave too. But he loved it. He loves that movie actually. That's great. So, but then it's at this moment, you have this torture scene. And again, to Tarantino's credit, being able to introduce a soundtrack of songs, which for most people watching this film probably haven't, they associate little green bag, uh, Steelers will stuck in the middle with you. Um, I can't fight this feel or not. That I can't fight mm-hmm. this feeling. Listen hooked, on the, feeling. hooked on a feeling coconut. They associate it with this movie now. Like that's gotta be something to just the power of how music's used in here. And in this sequence, if there was no music, I think we'd be even more turned off by just how gruesome this sequence turns out and as he cuts the ear. But the music helps cut the tension in just such an odd black humor kind of way, like dark humor. So from Vanishing Point to Madonna to Steeler's Wheel, Tarantino is an expert in the pop culture around film and music. And sometimes he uses it as story trope, and sometimes it's just depth of character. So, like, you and I both learned something today. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Steeler's Wheel enough. Yeah. I don't own any of their stuff, but I know, you know, I know, oh, yeah, that song or this song. I had no idea that was the Rafferty Brothers. Yeah. Like, I know Jerry Rafferty. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, have a lot of his stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had no idea that Steeler's Wheel was Jerry Rafferty and that Michael Madsen is so familiar with it and handles it in that kind of odd dancing sequence that's the celebration of the you impending s- torture. You said the Vega brothers like to dance, don't right? They? <laughs> uh, yeah. That song yeah. and the depth of knowledge, because what's written as the reveal on that from Stephen Wright as the DJ DJ yeah. is just his depth of knowledge. Most... I, I think it's a space that he's really good in and really comfortable in. Well, it creates believable characters on the screen, Mm -hmm. real humans that, here's the thing, Mm -hmm. are smart but not snobby. Yeah. And when I I watch one of his films, I feel like I get like a film lesson by the peppered references, whether it's Charles Bronson or whoever. Yeah. They do a whole great other like, uh, Pam Greer thing with this TV show that they talk about in the car later. Yeah, exactly right. But it's also like a music class. And I can't tell you how many of these songs from, especially his early films that like I hear in the film, and I'm like, man, that's actually a pretty good song. It's kind of a shame. Not a lot of people know about it mm-hmm. until now, mm-hmm. whether that's Miserloo by Dick Dale or um, the Chuck Berry song. That's, that's pretty well known, but like uh girl, you'll be a woman soon. And Pulp yeah. Fiction. like there's so many great songs that he just kind of put the Delphonics. Well, that to use that girl, you'll be a woman soon. And then by urge overkill, instead of Neil Diamond mm-hmm. or any of the other 50 people that have recorded that prior. Yeah. Yeah. Son of a preacher, man. 
Right. Pulp Fiction, I think, probably has the best soundtrack. Uh, but no, I think, Matt, if, uh, if that song's not in the sequence, it's probably almost unwatchable. Just not that it, like, it's well bad, badly acted. It's just too gruesome and too off-putting to watch and sit through. Yeah, well said. Funny that like music makes it palatable, or at least you have to watch. Did you find yourself watching this thinking about Thief at all? Mm. I was thinking about a few heist movies, actually. So the patriarch of the heist, um, the Joe, yeah, Joe. What's his actor? Lawrence Tierney. Lawrence Tierney felt like the patriarch in heist to me. The guy that mm-hmm. plays that role and from everything from the natural to mm-hmm. to play that role and everything. When I watch Death Proof, I can't help but see his acknowledgement of faster pussycat kill kill mm-hmm. and vanishing point, and he's admitted as much. Yeah. It makes me wonder inspirationally and as a student of film as he was in his early formative years at the video store. Yeah. If Michael Mann's heist played into this. Why not? It has a Michael Mann city-like approach to it. Mm-hmm. Didn't have the money to do the shootout that Mann doesn't heat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's there. Yeah. And then if you look at the characters, the James Conn character to all of the support in heist, I'm sorry, in Thief. Do you like that movie? Uh, no. Yeah. I don't hate it. It's like, no, I don't like, no. Yeah. That's like, it's a, no. It's lesser man, but. It, there was there was something there, but again, young, early Michael, formative man. Uh, do you like that movie? Yeah, probably not as much as some of his other stuff. Okay, I fair. like I like Heat. I like Manhunter. Yeah, uh, a lot of a lot of those ones. But yeah, I, I get what you're I get what you're saying at here. I like that. He, and then from the music that we talked about, this is a man that isn't afraid to pay homage to the influences in his film upbringing, and I. He finds a way to do that interestingly. Well, this is a perfect segue. So let's talk about another one, probably Alfred Hitchcock, because this next moment, this is kind of like the very Hitchcockian moment of the story, which is at this point, now it's spoiled because we've seen this movie a dozen times probably, but first view watching when he's about to just light this cop on fire, which with the gasoline and then bullets, boom, 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 boom. He's just blown away. And we see that it's orange. And then as orange kind of dissipates and he says, I'm a cop. LAPD. Now we know something that no one else really knows. And then so the next kind of section of the movie is kind of like how he got to to this road. And I like kind of this, let's get them to the present, to the post aftermath, and then let's take them back a few steps and kind of show how these individual characters got to this specific place. And I think Mr. Orange, they spend the most time with him and his is definitely the most interesting. Sure. And yeah, he tells to kind of get in, as you said, with um, Hallerday. Uh, tells them you gotta you gotta remember this story and this is how you're gonna get them on the on the side of the cops in the bathroom story. I walk in the men's room and who's standing there? Four Los Angeles County sheriffs and a German shepherd. They're waiting for you. No, it's just a bunch of cops hanging out in the men's room talking. When I walk through the door, they all stop what they were talking about and they looked at me. <laughs> That's hard, man. That's a fucking hard situation. <laughs> Julian Shepard starts barking. He's barking at me. I mean, it's obvious. He's barking at me. This sequence has a lot going on because he's telling A, a a fictitious story, but B, as the viewer, we actually get to see what that looks like visually. And then as he starts to tell it, he's telling it in the bathroom as the camera pans around within the sequence that he's telling, which is... 
a unique way to shoot a sequence like that. But again, if you're going to have this dialogue, this explanation of these things, you got to find interesting ways to do it. And this bathroom bit is definitely an interesting take on it. I always like that bit too, when he hits the the blow dryer and then he plays with sound a bit and it's, it's like this, like almost like a jet engine of an, a blow. And they're all kind of looking at him very suspicious, man. Is this, is the dog going to come and sniff his bag that has drugs in it? Are these guys going to start questioning him? And it's just an annoyance to this guy telling this story of how he had to stop this perp. As important as that, like a virgin bit is, I think this is the best moment in this movie. Mm. When Bush, uh, sorry, when Bushimi, when Tim Roth walks in and he's playing the story out as it's being told, explaining what he did to get them on his side as he's in the story talking in the voiceover. That's not what the story is. That is that none of that makes sense. Yeah. Just watch that. It's when he walks into the bathroom and approaches the cops and it, in a way, breaks the fourth wall without quite breaking it, but kind of. Mm-hmm. That scene is masterful. That is so well done. Yeah. So smart. So clever. Moves the needle so quickly through story. And here's the thing that I really appreciated about this film. This movie indulges what he's really good at, and that's the space that isn't really what the movie is about. The character development space through these one-off conversations. As this filmography progresses or ages matures, I think I would take that indulges to overindulges. There's not a lot going on in Reservoir Dogs in the quiet spaces in the mortuary or funeral parlor. It's just sort of waiting there to see if Joe's going to show up and can we get um, Tim Roth to Mr. Orange to the doctor before he bleeds out. And should we even like, it's, it's a lot of waiting. So the waiting is paid off for, or with really interesting dialogue bits. And this is also one of them. And to that, this 97 minute or 95 minute movie feels two hours to me, like and not in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot in here. Yeah. He doesn't waste any lines, but it indulges in stuff. That's not about the heist or post heist. Yep. That's indulgent. Yeah. Later on in this mature maturation of this film career, it becomes to me very overindulgent. Sure. But this scene in the bathroom. Oh, that's good. Oh man. Yeah. That like I had forgotten how great, and I, I can't say that like great. And it's like, and it's something that isn't even real. Like it's just a made. Up it's not real. That's yeah. voiced over that breaks the fourth wall. That's interesting. And has conflict that matters because if he doesn't sell this story to the criminals that he's trying to pull one over on in this heist, Mm -hmm. he doesn't get, Oh, it's just, that scene is genius. I have a genius. I have a question for you. Do you get any, uh, uh, like noir vibes from this film at all? Um, noir in the, in the caper piece, maybe not the femme fatale piece, but certainly. Well, definitely there's sure hardly a, there's no woman in yeah, it. Yeah, there's the the woman the woman element is they're just talked about over dialogue is essentially how that exists in this world. But and also to the B level kind of budget it was given. Most of those noirs were given like mm-hmm. six dollars and a you know, yeah. roll of duct tape and make it work. Yeah. So yeah. I readily, readily see or just see the influence of and we talked about it in the last time, Elmore Leonard on, on his writing. Sure. For those of you out there who 
need a Tarantino fix or he's only going to make 10 movies and that's it. If you just want a fix of like what his films are like, you just go read one of his books because it's like watching one of his movies. Right. Uh, you can just, by the way the people talk in there about just nonsense and then they're just all just, every, all the characters in his books are just scummy gangster, just low lives who are just aspiring for some type of like whatever. And that's how these characters kind of operate too. So I kind of, that's the, that's the noir vibes I get is just in the characterizations is it's just gangsters doing gangster shit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and like, as we talked about, Jackie Brown mm-hmm. adapted some of his material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can't say it any better. Sure. So now the team's mostly assembled and then we get this, this great little bit here, uh, introducing how they're going to address one another. Why can't we pick our own colors? No way, no way. Try it once, it doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. But they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. No way. I pick. You're Mr. Pink. Be thankful you're not Mr. Yellow. Yeah, yeah, but Mr. Brown, that's a little too close to Mr. Shit. Mr. Pink sounds like Mr. Pussy. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me. I'll, I'll be Mr. Purple. You're not Mr. Purple. Some guy on some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. All right, look, if it's no big deal to be Mr. Pink, you want to trade? Hey, nobody's trading with anybody. This ain't a goddamn fucking city council meeting, you know. Now listen up, Mr. Pink. There's two ways you can go on this job. My way or the highway. Now, what's it going to be, Mr. Pink? Jesus Christ, Joe. Fucking forget about it. It's beneath me, you know. I'm Mr. Pink. Let's move on. In any other normal heist film, this sequence would be, here's the blueprints, fellas. This is how you're going to attack the the jewelry store. You two are going to be on lookout. You'll be the getaway driver, and you guys are going to be crowd control. In this film, it's an argument about what they're going to call themselves, which albeit in, in this, because I've seen that sequence a, a, a thousand times in these types of films. This is refreshing that to the minutia of arguing about names and the stubbornness of all these people's personalities, that this is what hangs them up. Not the logistics of doing the job, but what are you calling me on the job? Yeah, exactly. That's really well said. Yeah. If you can't show the heist, why talk about it mm-hmm. so that I don't have to worry about it instead Let's get into the other piece of that and Steve Buscemi and his insistence on let's act like professionals and how completely unprofessional he's being because Mr. Pink is just too effeminate for his liking. Mm -hmm. I want to, the Joe character in that is so similar to the Robert Prosky. That's the lead character in Thief Mm -hmm. as you played again. You could interchange those two. I'm going to look into that. Maybe I'll have some um, news on that for next week about how important that film was. But a lot of the discussion in Thief is around the same kind of sure. intrapersonal relationships that basically James Kahn builds with Robert Prosky. And in this, the inner workings of this team, and it precludes to a larger problem. Mm-hmm. And that's if we can't even agree on names because I don't like the color. How can we pull this job off? Exactly. Yeah. And the answer is... They, they don't. They can't. <laughs> they kind of don't. Right. It's, a, it's a shit show. Foreshadowing. Yeah. Really, really good foreshadowing. Uh, yeah, Lawrence Tierney, I mentioned to you off mic that he played Elaine Bennis's father on an episode of Seinfeld. Yeah. The same old curmudgeon bastard. Like, 
he can't even get into what the thing is. He's like, look, man, no one's switching. He's like, he's like, hey, I paid for your breakfast. You can at least put in for the tip. Like, he, he's real good. He just, he must have been held to, to work with, though. <laughs> like, They've been held to work with, but yeah. I'll tell you what, old curmudgeon bastard was an amazing 90s ska band. <laughs> there you go. Sure, right? Ska Excellent. Band. Hashtag. So then we kind of get into, yeah, we're still with Mr. Orange and his backstory, and he's kind of like letting letting the people know, like, this is what I'm finding out. They don't know who you are, this and that. And then we do get a little bit of the heist, and this is this is probably the most that we get in, in the entire film. Yeah. Now, if it's a manager, that's a different story. The managers know better than to fuck around. So if you get one that's giving you a static, he probably thinks he's a real cowboy, so you got to break that son of a bitch in two. If you want to know something he won't tell you, Cut off one of his fingers, the little one. Then tell him his thumb's next. After that, I'll tell you if he wears ladies' underwear. I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. Awesome. <laughs> Let's get a taco. That's a great line. Yeah. Let's talk about just the sequencing of the story and just kind of just to see. So in a real movie, and then we'll do this, and it, it has the memento effect where if you actually put it in order it's like probably not as interesting so it has to be like mr white's intro mr blonde's intro all this stuff with mr orange and all this backstory and the stuff with the cop in the cops in the bathroom the opening the the like a virgin bit and then all this everything else in the in the warehouse like that's the actual structure of this film when you put it like that, that's it's almost not as interesting. It's almost fun to get in late, get get ahead, see the aftermath, then go back to take the path on how we got here. Not many writers or directors can really walk that and and still tell a coherent and interesting story. But whether it's this Pulp Fiction, Memento, I think it helps the film more than anything. Hey, great, yeah, well said. Yeah, end game. Just kidding. <laughs> um. I want to ask you another question. Okay. I know you're a huge fan of the chapter-like way oh, Tarantino yeah. tells films. Yes. You want to talk about the way he does chapters in this? Yeah. And if that's done for character or if that's done for bookmarks and story, tell me what you think. Go ahead. De definitely. Uh, yeah, so we get three in this one, and it's by it's by character. So you get a Mr. White, a Mr. Blonde, and a Mr. Orange. Well, you could argue are probably your, your main characters, excuse me, of the film. And yeah, and I think those sequences do them a lot of justice. And when you say bookmarks, it, this this is again that Elmore Leonard just um, influence that that he has yeah. to to name what you're in to kind of give you some some grounding. And he carries that on to, to Pulp Fiction. And then it was even more evident the first time I saw him actually throw out chapters, which was in Kill Bill. And I was like, man, I was like, this is either a, like a play, which I think this film has a very play like atmosphere, especially in the space that they play around in, in that warehouse, mm -hmm. the way the camera moves, like there's a lot of free space for the actors to move around, which is like watching something on stage. But man, the first time I saw Kill Bill and I was like, oh, wow, this is even more like uh, like broken up. Like this is like an actual like a book, like reading like a book or like Saturday morning serials, chapter one, Bridge of Death or something like that. Right. Things like that. And I think it helps out, especially in, we got to do Kill Bill out and we got to do Pulp Fiction. Like we, we still got to cover the rest of his oeuvre. So with what you just said there, which I know that you're a fan of that, I have to ask you another question because okay. I think this is an interesting point. 
Dude, just say it, real, real quickly. Oh, sorry, I, yeah. I think it's less distracting in this film than it probably is in some of the others because it's just a real quick title card. So when he does that and plays out the essential stage play on the silver screen, which is the Hateful Eight, mm. mm-hmm. how does this, like that literally is what you just said, <clears throat> chaptered stage play. Yes. Better or worse than Kill Bill or Reservoir Dogs in your mind? I mean, he finally did it. He finally went all in and Definitely. did what you just said. So yeah. what do you think? Well, I like that movie, but that, that film's a very, probably even more single location than this film truly is. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, but yeah, it definitely falls into that to that structure. But here, I like how simple it is. It's just a character's name, and we know we're going to spend the time with that character to A, get to know them better, and B, see what they were like pre-heist mess up. And I like that. And it, it gets us familiar and up to speed with these characters, especially Mr. Orange, when we realize that the cat's out of the bag, that he is, in fact, the rat working for the cops. How did he get there? Do you see how similar these two films are? Mm-hmm. The rat in the the Honor Among Thieves, the collection of baddies that mm-hmm. are, like, they're very similar in concept, aren't they? Sure. This one's way better. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah without a doubt. Yeah. I like Hateful Eight, but again, like again, speaking to the overindulgence that right. he is, that's a very long and gestating movie that you you truly have to be in the right headspace to get involved with something like that. I mean, that movie is so much a stage play. There's even a break in the middle of it. Yeah. Well, well, when he did the 75, 70 millimeter roadshow version, there was an actual intermission in yeah. the middle of the movie, right? Which was pretty cool. Hashtag bring back the intermission. <laughs> Hashtag bring back film. Let's hurry. Yeah, hashtag bring back film. <laughs> How about that? I'll put that on today's episode. Okay. Uh, okay, let's get to the end of the film because we're there. Um, this is just the colliding of every story element that we've had thus far. Okay. Nice guy, Eddie, Joe, Mr. White, Mr. Pink, Mr. Orange, unnamed cop. I think they tell his name. It's, it's uh, escaping me. Marius? Something like that. Maybe Brent. <laughs> Don't look it up. Marvin. It's Marvin. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking it up. Okay, look it up. All right, go. That doesn't sound familiar, but okay. Um, but it's just the 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 combination of all these elements. And, man, nice guy Eddie comes in here and he says, oh, yeah, you you killed Mr. Blonde here. And he's like, because he, he was going to kill the cop. And he just wastes the cop at that point. Mm-hmm. And then really going into, and I think it's at that moment when he knows, man, this Mr. Orange is, man, is a little shifty. What's his name? Marvin Nash. Oh, okay, excellent. Uh that's the first time that has ever happened ever in our the, relationship. You've ever gotten the name. That right? I got the name and you, wow, to that, <laughs> raise it up. To that. Jeez, there was a snowball fight in hell this morning yeah, too. Yeah, huh? it's like the Aurora Borealis. It's rare. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's at this moment when he realizes, man, this Mr. Orange isn't what he says he is because you just put away someone that literally kept his mouth shut in the in the slammer uh, and didn't mention any of our names. And you're trying to tell me some story that he was going to come in here and ambush us with the jewels. Yeah, Man, this is just heated. And then Joe walks in. He's got the knife at him. And then White's very almost fatherly with Mr. Orange, this pseudo protector with him, wants to see that through to the end to get him the help he needs without compromising himself either, even going as far as to reveal his real name to him. The question is why. Yeah. Um, I posed a question to you, in the in, which yeah. I think would be an interesting angle to play in, in that what is actually the nature of that relationship? Because I, I felt like they were almost a couple. A couple-y, yeah. He's certainly caressing him as he's dying, and they are... Mr. White doesn't offer anybody else that same space. I think the, he cares about him a lot. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think the problem is, is either of those theories are underdeveloped. A relationship yeah. or E fatherly, brotherly type. Of, we get that scene where he's talking about, let's go get it. Like that's like the extent of what we see them together. Yeah. And maybe that's a, a fault of the film and that could have been kind of put together a little better. But in this instance, he's just, man, if you shoot him, I'm shooting you. And mm-hmm. then I, if you shoot my dad, I'm shooting you. Yeah. And man, Mr. Pink's the only one with any sense to literally get the hell out of the way as these guys just literally kill each other. Mexican standoff, as they would call that. One of the things that I really noticed in that was that they are triangular in their appearance on screen. So again, I'm not saying love triangle. I'm not saying that, but the triangle, good, bad, and the ugly, kinda. Mm. You and you are yes, exactly. That's the that's that's the good, the bad, and the ugly, and who's gonna flinch first? Um, and kind of similar, they all end up all, all dead. shot to pieces. Yep. Chris Penn, we haven't talked about him at all. Okay, is he the guy that you like as the mafioso son? The heavy, the too hot-headed, you buying it? Why not? I, I, I kind of I, I dig him in this film, and I think it's just a shame. I can't really think of a lot of Chris Penn roles off the top of my head. Shortcuts. Yeah, like career kind of cut way, too, way, way too soon for him. But, yeah, you said yeah, Joe Pesci-esque. Mm-hmm. This film can't afford Joe Pesci at this time coming off of Goodfellas and winning the Oscar. Yeah. So you have to fall back on Chris Penn, but I think he's more than capable, like of this almost like daddy's boy. Like I love the like the way he kind of talks. Is like, man, wait till you. Like, if you guys think he, Joe's mad at you, he's gonna. It's like he's gonna be way mad at me. Like it's like that they were playing ball in the house and they broke like mom's vase. Right. It's like that. Exactly. It's like that type of banter with him. Even down to the windbreaker. I love that's got the, the little tuft of hair on the chain peeking out of the top. I love the windbreaker. Everyone else is crisp suits and he's just like rolling in in this like 90s early 90s blue windbreak and yeah with the gold chains sizzle chest hair with i love it i love his look it's it fits his character so well nice guy eddie is his name hardly yeah 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 he's he's a real piece of work through this whole thing so let me ask you one more question about names and then we'll kind of wrap this up okay i think mr orange fits mr pink fits mr white fix fits do you like mr blonde for Madsen, or do you want like a color color? I've spent some time thinking about that, and I'll let you answer. And I'll What's say interesting what I think about that be. is that because technically you could make the case that it is a color, but because it is so unlike one of these things is not like the other, that's kind of his character too. One of these characters isn't like the other, like he's the most unhinged. So him having like the least cohesive name with the rest of the group kind of fits the way he just goes off the chain. So maybe a bit of a MacGuffin. Yeah. Yeah. I'm buying that. I liked red for him. Yeah. I feels see, like a Mr. Red. To I could me. see that. Angry. Angry, fiery. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Yeah. I wonder why. I don't know if I've ever heard his reasoning on why Mr. Blonde for him. Because that's a color, but it's not really a color. Mm-hmm. And then I remember the first time watching this when they were discussing who the rat might be. I thought, well, it's got to be Mr. White just because of the name, because then you can take on any role that you want to be as a white or blank clear surface. Mm, that's good, too. But that didn't play out either. Maybe that's, that's just, a MacGuffin, too. Maybe that's just trying to mislead you. That worked because I went that road. Do you think that, that that moment's powerful when Mr. Orange blows away Madsen? And then I think we kind of get at that moment that oh, it's, it's him. Like that's lost on me now because I've just seen it so many times. Yeah, because what the best part in that whole scene is 
Mr. Blonde pouring the gasoline on the floor that's going to literally be the fuse that ignites the cop. Mm -hmm. He's just torturing the hell out of him, so much so that it's not just the gas. Like, he could put a ring of gas around the chair Mm -hmm. and just let it kind of engulf him that way. Nope. It's got to be this long fuse that Mm -hmm. he walks back. It's so Saturday morning, Wiley Coyote (laughs) fusey. That's kind of like what that is. Right? Yeah. But great. Mm -hmm. And then... Boom, 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 yep. I love it. Yeah. yeah. He like shoots him like 10 times. Like he pulls a, I shot him six times. <laughs> so let me ask you, we've talked about influence prior and post. Okay, okay. Does this movie have any influence on James Wan and Saw? In your yeah, idea? we talked about that. Yeah, it's a very similar premise. Dead guy in the middle of the room, torture in the room, singular location, dingy warehouse. Why not? Torture. Torture, yep. Yeah. I think it has, might. has to be. It has to. Be. When we see James Wan, we'll ask him. It's the first thing we'll ask him. To that. <laughs> James, hurry. Anytime, man. We're waiting for you. James, I have a lot of things I want to ask you, but first things first. Were you influenced by Reservoir Dogs at all in Saw? <laughs> I like that first Saw movie. Like, it's it's in the sequels where it got... Messy. Yeah, that's the appropriate work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Mr. Mr. And this was interesting, too, and I've never noticed this. So, after this bloodbath, Mr. Pink gets out of there. And then it's Mr. Orange and Mr. White and they're in a brace and they're both dying. And he says, I'm a cop. And that whole tragedy, almost Shakespearean, like, like how, like, that's like, that's like one of Shakespeare's tragedies, this turn of re- revelation to the oh, other person. Well said. Yeah. That's, yep. But in the back speakers of the, of the sound, there's like a police commotion going on back there. And I think with Steve, with Mr. Pink, and I couldn't quite make out everything that was being said, but he was either A, being arrested, B, being killed, or getting away. Oh, really? And I've, I had never picked up on that, but there was there was something else taking place behind us, but not meant to be the focus because we're meant to focus on that moment, but I thought that was an interesting little touch. I don't know if he would be the one that would get the benefit of escape. So He had to have been caught. I might want to go back and rewatch that just to listen sure. to it. Sure, yeah. The other part that's really interesting in that is the reveal from Mr. Orange to Mr. White that he's been the mole. And as much as Mr. White has detested that unknown character the entire film, it's an interesting juxtaposition relationship because he's obviously the closest to Mr. Orange, so much so that he's given away personal information, which is a dead no-no. Yep. It's almost like the end of that film is a really violent signature on the love note, whether that's father to son or boyfriend to boyfriend or whatever that you, you want to play that out. Mm-hmm. Cause you can see, I think he's more tortured with the prospect of, am I going to do in my friend or than he is, I'm going to get arrested sure. or maybe even die my, because he's going to die here yeah. in just a minute. Anyway, mm-hmm. I really like that. Yeah. Thoughts. Yeah, I, I like how this all kind of wraps very omen-like and how he's mm-hmm. killed by the cops. Like, you put that gun down, don't you kill him. And and I like how it's all off screen. For a film that isn't afraid to show violence, in this moment it decides, no, we're not going to show him shooting him in the head, be him getting gunned down by the police. It's all just kind of whooshed away. And to his credit, I mean, less is more in certain some instances, and I think it's more powerful that we don't see any of that on screen. Mm-hmm. And then to Tarantino's credit, I, I love, you're not as much a fan of him, but I love when filmmakers do this. For, for the most part, this 90 minutes has been fairly intense, 
bloody, uncomfortable at times, challenging as a, as a viewer. To have that be the last sequence, you literally walk out of the theater to the theater. I'm like, man, I need to go take a shower. Like, like I'm just like, I got like a funk on me. You don't have that funk because the song that plays you out is Coconut by Harry Nielsen. And it has such a levity to it that you almost have to like laugh at like, wow, what a journey type of thing. I love when directors do that. That's how Evil Dead ends. Like you have the, the most bloody film you could ever watch with possession and whatnot. And you get this like ragtag tune at the end, like. It really helps cut, like, it's okay to laugh again now after it. the film's over. You know, it just occurred to me, was you're saying that I was thinking back to um, Mr. Orange and Mr. White. Mm -hmm. When we're getting the backstory on Mr. Orange, there's that interesting bit before he goes and meets the gangsters and starts to spin his yarn about the story in mm -hmm. the bathroom, where he dumps over his change bowl mm. and takes out a ring and puts it on. Yeah, I don't know what okay, that... Okay, Jesse, <laughs> I, I'm going to tell... I, I think I have it. Okay. I think I think he is attracted to Harvey Keitel. Okay. Because he puts that on, which wouldn't matter to any of those gangster guys. They're not going to give a damn if he's married. Frankly, they probably would like him not being married. Sure, yeah. But it's almost like, and that it's stuffed in like some little measly change drawer that's middling with like nickels and pennies, not even quarters. Yeah, there was no quarters I looked. <laughs> right, me too. So he puts that on before he goes out there to meet with them. And then if you go to the scene in the back of the car, mm -hmm. the hand that he's holding Harvey Keitel's with is his left, sans wedding ring. Mm -hmm. And then the reveal at the end that I was a cop is almost an admission of truth, not a gotcha. Yeah. Like as we're going down together, I need you to off I need to offer you this one more piece. I think that's why that relationship <clears throat> is so strong for me in that film, because that's so subtle and smart. And maybe that is and maybe it isn't, but there's, I think there's some complexity to that character. And then I want to give you one more. Yeah. When he sees his buddy cop in the diner, which is, we were making fun of like, this is yeah. Honey Bunny before it was Honey Bunny. Yeah. Like when you see your your homie, you like walk up and it's bro hug and clap and mm -hmm. you know, all that. Yeah. And this is embrace at the table, which I think that's kind of a, kind of a weak, because the other guy yeah. doesn't stand up. It's sort of awkward and weird and through the glass. Yeah. I think there's a little bit more to explore in that. Not that because the show's just about done. But when you guys go through it, if you watch this, it might be worth considering. And I think that wedding ring in the bowl is the key. Why uh, would that matter? Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know if it's that direction or, or one other direction, but it definitely, I think, signifies a bond between these Absolutely. guys. Yeah. Okay, uh, right, a sure. A bond of, an, of, an, of camaraderie and importance in this short time that they've spent together that these two care about each other. It's certainly the most honest relationship in the film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Sans wedding ring, which is a, a front when we see him put it on the first time. Yeah. It's honest. Like whether that's because I love this man or as a brother or as something else, either one, so be it. Mm -hmm. The fact that he's dying and he's driving and they're holding hands is so important. Like he's, he's got it. And honor among thieves or any of those other I know bridges. Yeah, I know what you're trying to say. Make that relationship all the more important. Well said. I think uh, I only have one, one thing I want to just add to this whole film and then we'll kind of get into some stuff. As we said earlier, not a big hit when it came out, kind of came and went, but when Pulp Fiction came in, Pulp Fiction was just such a, to be able lightning to, bolt. Oh, yeah, a lightning bolt of just originality and just something people hadn't seen before. 
that people went back to this and was like, well, well he made a film before this, and that's when this film found its audience. Exactly. Yeah, in rentals and on television. Yeah, you. That's how I came to it. <laughs> did you? Did you? Did you see Pulp Fiction before this? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So this, yeah, wasn't a big thing. So. This is almost like testing the waters, like putting your toe in to like kind of thing. And then, man, Pulp Fiction is just like dumping, jumping right into the deep end. Like him and Roger Avery, he wrote that with, are fully in control of those characters, the pacing of that story, the structure. And I think trying your hand at directing, like I think you fully knew in that film what he wanted to do filmmaking wise. Mm -hmm. Speaks for itself. You already mentioned it, but your favorite, your favorite tasting note, why don't you just go ahead and say it again? Go that bathroom bit where he's narrating what he's telling and the importance of the story as we see him pretending to deliver, as we see him in the bathroom talking to the cops in that fantasy story bit. I, I can't I can't explain it because there's like four things happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, I'd forgotten all about it, Jesse. Mm -hmm. That might be- One of his best sequences? If not, yeah. his best sequence. Yeah. <laughs> There's some good dialogue bits yep. and that man, yeah, I don't know. Good. That was good. That might be first across the finish line. That's yeah, what I, about I like that. Is that you too? Mine's the opening. Okay. It's such an appetizer. It's foreplay. It's just a perfect little nugget to his career, to the rest of this film, to really just kind of give you a taste at the type of writer and director that you're working with here. And I think it, 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 it sets the pace of the film so nicely just to kind of just sit and talk over. Like you can almost taste the coffee in that. Like, you know oh, what yeah. that coffee tastes like. Yeah. Right. It doesn't taste like the guy I, I make you, I try to make you good coffee when you come here to watch movies. You do. This is that's shit coffee. And we know what that tastes like. Yep. Exactly. You can almost just, you're, you're almost like a participant in that sequence. And that's not easy to do in, in, in films. So and it's the introduction to him. I love that he's the one talking about like a virgin too. It's just poetics, maybe not the right word, but it's very apt that he's the one introducing the world to himself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I, yes. And maybe we'll have the same one here, but what's the, oh my God. I got to find another one. We've had Pat Hingle here for, <laughs> Oh my God. I like Pat Hingle. I got to pick the cop torture bit. Like it's in just any film like that, that, that alone is just, it's very difficult to watch and how it wraps up is very brilliant. You and I had a discussion on Thursday night uh -huh. about this very thing, didn't we? Sure. And this is a teaser for the audience out there that hopefully there's more coming, but sure. not today. Yeah. Is it better to show it or not show it? Cause in either case it's effective. And the removal of that ear is so brutal. Yeah. I'm actually kind of glad that we don't see it. We just see the effects of it. Mm -hmm. We had quite the discussion. On I, I love how that, that camera thing. pulls away. Like it's in on time them, on them and then just goes this way, stays there. You hear everything. You're hearing Steeler's wheel. And then Madsen comes back into frame with it. And you just see the aftermath. That's enough. Think about how agri pro that is to the conversation we had earlier this week. Yeah. The music to, Mute the violence. Yeah. The get out before you freak your audience out too bad that you can't get him back. But eventually you are going to reveal yeah. the ear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then what the effects of that look like on the person who's had it done to them. Yep. It's a gentle reveal instead of shocking. Here's the ear slice. And in a, in a film space where I prefer artistry over just gratuitousness, 
it's a very artistic way to sh- film a scene like that. Okay, I want to ask you a question. Okay. I feel like I've asked you 10 this, this week, but it's I'm like going to ask you another 20 one. 20 questions, yeah. Who's better mm. at this violence, De Palma or Tarantino? Oh, oh man, that's hard. I know. Who's better? <laughs> Do we agree those are the top yeah, two in the game? The, oh, man, they're the masters. Okay, who's better? Tarantino might be just a tad bit better, but that's no knock against De Palma because he's equally as good at doing that. That's tough at question, huh? Yep. I don't know. I'm glad you like yeah, because yeah, De Palma the way when when in Carrie when we go split screen when you know shit's gonna hit the fan, that sequence is just a mirage of violence. But the way, because it's shot in split screen, you're getting reaction, uh, action and reaction at the same time. Like that's a that's an artistry into it of itself. I want more hashtag more split screen in movies. That works great in that film. <laughs> The baseball bat bit yes. of Capone as De Niro in The Untouchables. Oh, yep. The battleship Katimpkin bit in The Untouchables on the staircase where that gangster gets mm-hmm. blown through the glass. Frank Nitti, yep. Oh, Sean Connery's Sean death. Connery's de- I mean... Over talk- dying. Okay. <laughs> dying for five minutes. Irishmen don't die easy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, the blinds uh, dressed to kill. Oh, Jesus. How could we Angie Dickinson that? getting killed in that in that elevator. It's bloody. It's gruesome. Like, yeah. Any number of, of yeah, Scarface. Blowout. Remember the chainsaw bit with the guy in the yeah in the shower in Scarface. They're both really good. I almost have to give the nod to Tarantino because again in Pulp Fiction they shoot Marvin in the face and that's a gruesome moment. But it becomes more about them arguing about man we got to get off the road like man they can't see this thing like I think I'm going to go with Tarantino just barely and what I'm going to use to defend that is when Eli Roth is is bleeding out. They do such a good job of the pooling of blood around him. Because if you watch that movie, it's Eli getting... Roth. Sorry, Tim Roth. Sorry, my bad. Excuse <laughs> me. Wrong wrong Tarantino film. Yes, wrong one. Um, sorry. Yeah. The blood is increasing in mass and diameter <clears throat> as that movie progresses, which just kind of leads like he's still bleeding. He's still bleeding. And by the time he shoots Madsen, there's a nice pool around him. It's almost sticky. He's almost like he's stuck to it. Yeah. Who's the master distiller on Reservoir Dogs? Oh, I, are we purposely no, not good? But I don't want to say Tarantino. That's just, why not? Well, okay, I guess. Go ahead. I'm going to go with Buscemi. Okay. <laughs> just for personal preference. Okay. I love Steve Buscemi. Yeah, he's great. But it probably should be Tarantino. Yeah. This is yeah him, mastery. But I'm also not going to go Tarantino. I got to go Harvey Keitel because this man doesn't have a career unless that man gets involved with this story. It's true. And he's good in the movie too. So, yeah, to Harvey Keitel, the very Robert De Niro ish of 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 other actors, he's like the B level Robert De Niro. Yeah, well, so there's no knock against him because I think Harvey Keitel is more than a capable actor. Yeah, he unless he reads that story that's passed along from his acting coach's wife, like it gets into his hands. I don't. Maybe Tarantino doesn't have the same career that we that he current that he had. You ever seen Bad Lieutenant? Yes, he's good in that. Yeah. I always remember him in uh, that movie, The Piano, with oh, uh, yeah. Holly Hunter. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that's who oh I'm Oh, my God, I'd forgotten all about that. About The Piano? <laughs> that's a pretty amazing career. <laughs> yeah. The, mean, mean Streets, Taxi, taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. Bad Lieutenant. Smoke. Yep. This. This, yeah. Pulp Fiction. That's nothing to gawk about. Yeah. Pretty good. How are you going to rate and grade Pulp, uh, pulp Fiction? Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> um, single Barrel. Look, this is our introduction into a man that's going to change film. It's not his best work. 
that might be budget that might be sort of developing your craft and maturation. We talked about that, but what this film does is it showcases the space that he's really good in thriller indulgent, not overindulgent Mm -hmm. and interesting things that people say about it that might take the place of action. Sure. So I'm going to go single barrel. I can't go top shelf because it's just not. Yeah. But it's 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 unique and of itself and one of a kind. Yeah, I went back to my rankings of his films and this one's pretty in the upper tier compared to the 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 like my top 5. I don't think this is in my top 5. It's no knock against the film. Yeah, it's totally a single barrel film. I think it's wholly unique. Introduces us to his universe his way of speaking his violence his tone the way he just kind of plays and then those become tropes into of themselves Mm -hmm. it's not my favorite tarantino film but man it paved the way for pulp fiction and that film's i could watch that film daily if forced to like it's that's one of the the top ones so yeah single barrel it's a hard film to watch in some of those sequences like yeah that torture bit that that's some that's some hard shit to to gestate but and there are periods in that dialogue that's a bit of a grind. Yeah. Like, come on and get on with it already. Mm-hmm. But the truth is there isn't really anything to get on to. Yeah. Because when the bad guys and boss bad guy shows up, the movie's over. Yep. So the movie is the wait. Mm-hmm. He does a good job of paying some of that off with, like, the chapter elements, which are backstory, which are a tasting note and unique and wholly unique to an individual cask or barrel that this might movie might be. Sure. The dialogue is unique. And same way the tasting note might be any single barrel distill distillation. I think if there is a such thing as a movie that is a single barrel as a single barrel bourbon could be with yeah, this the charred is, elements of wood. This it is, is this, this is totally it. Yeah. This the is most exactly. single barrel of all time. This is the most single barrel-y movie ever. Right. Excellent. Oh, that's a to that. To that. To that. Tarantino. Tarantino. We didn't kill ourselves this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Never again. No, but part, part of the problem is just like and you said you did say it well. When I'm willing to buy into that indulgence because that's what I know what I'm getting with him, it does get really, when he's so new and green in this film, we'd never seen anything like that before. By the time we get to film nine and you're just like, yikes, like he's really overstaying his welcome in some of these sequences. I had a a revelation that happened this summer that I want to tell you, Mm -hmm. and this is Tarantino to me. Mm -hmm. I want you to sit think about sitting down for an artist and having them draw you. Mm. like draw you you yeah there's that amazing commercial i think it was dove that it's like these women sitting with these artists and he's having them explain what they think they look like as he draws them and it's like i have this big nose and i have these ruddy cheeks and my ears are too big and then he shows them these pictures and it's these women in all of their ordained beauty and it like they break i love that commercial Mm. so think about that as this movie Mm. And then I want you to think about the dialogue sequence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And that is the character artist of you with the long nose and the over dramatized features that are cartoon like. You know what I'm talking about? That's totally what it that, is. That is yeah. that is the arc of his career in my mind. Sure. You'd almost hope for his allegedly tenth and final film that he almost does something like this film strip it down and get simple do it like yeah real minuscule get to just the meat and potatoes of it yeah excellent to that let's wrap up with a bit of a nightcap
Is that Jerry Rafferty in the room with us? Sing it, Jerry. (laughs) No, it was me. Yeah. (laughs) Matt, hit us with the nightcap this week. The nightcap this week is your favorite today, first entry of a director. So initial in the director's chair, best performance. Who who had the best first film? Best first film. Directing. We are not allowing any Citizen Kane here. Let's get that okay. out. Let's remove that right away. Is that low-hanging fruit? No, but I mean, and it's obviously that's a very fair argument sure. to be made. But the more interesting conversation about that is what the hell happened afterwards, Mr. Magnuson Ambersons. <laughs> right. Pretty much. Yeah. Man, if Memento was Nolan's first film, this would be a home run for me to pick that one. But oh, that's man. technically not his first film, so I can't pick that. Damn. Uh, in my research, there's a lot of great entries, you know, whether you look at the Coen brothers, uh, Blood, Simple. Blood Simple, and, you know, not David Fincher because that'd be Alien 3, but man, too bad it wasn't 7. You're right. Exactly. Uh, in my research, I did not know that this was this first person's film. I can't believe it. It's one of the masterpieces of all masterpieces. Arguably Stephen King's best adaptation. It's Frank Darabound in The Shawshank Redemption. Shocker. How's that his first movie? I know he wrote a lot prior to that. He even had a hand in Dream Warriors, actually. Uh, I didn't know that, really. Yeah, he did. Wait, I might be getting that wrong. I, I don't think... Maybe, maybe No, I'm thinking of someone else. Actually, I'm going to look it up, because okay. that, that might be true. Uh, yeah, the, what can you not say about The Shawshank? The film is just brilliant from beginning to end, but to literally come out of the gate with that, and then... I think he's only made three movies. It's that, The Green Mile. Mist. Uh, and The Mist. All three of those are pretty good movies. Damn right. Uh, probably preferred the, the the Mist a little more than, than Green Mile, but that's no knock. That's a, that's a terrific film, too. But The Shawshank is... A perfect film. Yeah, that's... Perfect. I don't need to explain. We'll do it. That'll be a great episode. But, yeah, that film speaks for itself. Everyone has seen that movie. Depending on the day, that is... One of probably three possible all-time number one, the best. Like it's either that, or the Hustler, yeah, or Vertigo. Those are probably the three that are in the rotation. Always floating. That movie is perfect. Yeah, perfect. And I can defend that because after over a hundred viewings, it comes on and I will sit and make sure I carve out time to watch whatever place it starts from that I picked it up again. It's perfect. Yeah, he did write, uh, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Wars, the remake of The Blob, The Fly 2, my God. Mm. Yeah, I don't know how he got it like so wrapped up in with Stephen King, but pff, best thing he ever did. Yeah, well, I picked good adaptable material at least. He picked some random short story from, what is that? Is that that's that, uh... A night is that Four different, seasons. different different seasons? Different seasons, yeah. Four seasons, whatever. Yeah. I think it is that one. Yeah, Rita, Rita Hayworth, Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. That's yep, perfect. I have to pick that one. How can you not? I can't believe that was his first movie. Like if you line that up to Citizen Kane, I think Shawshank wins because it's just more entertaining. I could probably make that argument. Yeah, certainly. Okay, so I think you have a great choice. Um, I probably would mention Ari Aster because there's no way that you can tackle Hereditary in the first time in the chair the way he did, and he somehow managed. Yeah, that's a... But that's also not going to be my choice. Oh, man, can I just back up a second? Oh, yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Damien Chazelle and Whiplash. Well, I mean, okay, right. This could be... We're going to talk about that film probably pretty soon. 
we talked about doing sort of like a music-based cast. Yeah, right? that, that'd be a lot of fun. But yeah, to come out of the gate swinging with that film and the strength that the prime, the first strength in that there's many strengths in there is that the tightness of that screenplay. Yeah. That's him too. So yeah, that's, but sorry, I don't want to really, I, that, that had to be mentioned. No, what? there's plenty of time to talk about great movies. So mm-hmm. Let's stay in that space. So yeah, Ari Aster with Hereditary was another one that I considered for a minute, but it's not better than Shawshank or better than Whiplash, but that's an amazing film. Um, I'm going to go with something that I think perplexed me upon first viewing. And later as I grew up, I came to really appreciate what the man became and his legacy of work is mostly pretty good. And that's sex lies and videotape Soderbergh. You mentioned it earlier as he's been mentioned a couple times in this episode, which out of sight and the adaptation of his material, Elmore Leonard, Elmore yeah. Leonard, right? I, so, love, I love Soderbergh. Yeah, me too. That movie in 1989 was a movie that I was interested as a 16 to 17 year old male for mostly the first word in the title. And I'm not afraid to admit that yeah. the people that were featured in it, and I don't mean James Spader, Andy McDowell, yeah. were pretty hot. Yeah. And like, I'm curious, like, who is <laughs> <James> this? James Spader. <laughs> he's, he's great in that film. Um, there's about a six year period where James Spader's pretty damn good too. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, I was thinking about him the other day because I was watching a, a film he was in. Uh, the Watcher. Oh, yeah. Keanu Reeves is like a serial killer. Yeah. That's a weird film. Yep. And I was kind of wondering, I was thinking, I was, I was like, man, like, he's, he's had an odd career. Like, yeah, all that blacklist stuff I can do without. But there's a, there's a, like, mid 20s James Spader is, God, really good. Yeah. And this is that space. Yeah. That movie was a wild disappointment for me at first because there wasn't enough visually of what that was. It was disgust. <laughs> But the invasive element of that, as I grew up and became more comfortable with film, had ties to Peeping Tom and the voyeuristic nature of what you will reveal and then the proclivities of the villain in that which is Spader to a certain extent and the truth that happens and the interplay between male and female. And that was Steven Soderbergh showcasing what I'm going to argue is his best traits, whether it's traffic Mm or Out of Sight, or another movie that no one loves except maybe me, which is Solaris. (laughs) He is really good about complex relationships between males and females. Yeah, I was going to ask you about traffic. I like traffic. I like traffic, too. I like that one, yeah. But yeah, you, yeah, you're in the Solaris fan club. And I've seen the original Russian version, too, and I think the um, remake with Clooney's even better. Yeah. I love that film. Yeah, that's that's one you always have like in your bullpen of just like underrated ones. I've heard you talk about that one a lot. You've seen it. Mm-hmm. Do you like it? Yeah. I don't I don't love it probably as much as you, but then I also don't love that Russian version either. No, so right. Well, Russian cinema is a little tough. Yeah, to that's start. it is it is a little rough. No, I love that I love that pick. That movie 10 years after I watched it the first time and revisited it was a much different, I just was too young and expected the title was misleading, even though it's not sure. Um, I'm going to go with that. That's just a movie that essentially exists on videotape that kind of then makes it singular location. Mm-hmm. The framing of the videotape would be the single location, like the screenshot sure. field of vision. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. I think you'd be a tad remiss if you didn't throw a little nugget to blood simple. Yeah, um, there's a definite film noir piece in me that's unadulterated and super biased, so I didn't choose that on purpose, but that's a freaking amazing entry. That's the Coen Brothers. It's a great, don't know. Yeah. It's a great first entry for them. Um, yeah. 
boy, we've mentioned well, like it, five no. or six really good first. Well, it just sets up. I was like, well, we got to we got to talk about Shawshank. We're gonna do our music thing where we talk about Whiplash. We got to do a David Fincher thing. We got to do a, a Coen Brothers cast. We got to do a Soderbergh thing. Like, yeah, well, we got we got plenty to. I think t- we post seven casts <laughs> today: <laughs> music, prison escape movies, Soderbergh, yeah. Coen Brothers, and then James Spader yeah, cast. Yeah. <laughs> James Spader cast. Young James Spader. Cask. Does that include Age of Ultron? Uh, too old. <laughs> too old. James nothing, Spader. Nothing past. Um, what do you think? It, pretty and pink. Because he's in Crash with that that Cronenberg movie, Holly Hunter. I like Crash. Yeah, that's that's a that's a wild movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. Yeah, this was a great episode talking about Reservoir Dogs. It was nice to watch it again and just kind of really get into the weeds with it. We're gonna wrap up this cast next week with. Matt, I've said this a lot. I've said I've been excited about a lot of films, whether it was Batman or Halloween or Empire Strikes Back or Vertigo. Well, do you want to do you want to mm-hmm. give it out now, or do you want to see if we, they can hit us up on the any of the social media? And we, want- we got to let it out of the bag. Right, it's it it's it's too good. Okay, I, I'm I'm excited for this one. This is primo cinema for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, single location for the most part, and we're gonna wrap this thing up with Die Hard. 1988. Severus Snape. Yes. Alan Rickman, Bruce Willis. Yeah, we're going to talk about all of them. John McTiernan, the the, the story, the, the this, the that, Nakatomi Plaza. Arguably the action film of all time. All time. Yeah. All time. All timer. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to. to it's talk. a Christmas movie. Christmas in July. <laughs> there you go. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that next week. Until then, cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I got to get going. I'm going to go pick my color name. I'd probably pick Mr. Orange because I do like the Broncos so much. I'm with uh, Bushimi. I kind of am akin to Mr. Purple. Yeah. That fit him. Royal. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a rating and review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Reservoir Dogs is property of Live America, Inc. and Dog Eat Dog Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. There's no need for this, man. Let's just put our guns down and let's settle this with a fucking conversation. Joe, if you kill that man, you die next. Repeat, if you kill that man, you die next. Larry, we have been friends and you respect my dad and I respect you, but I will put fucking bullets right through your heart. You put that fucking gun down now. God damn you, Joe. Don't make me do this. Larry, stop pointing that fucking gun at my dad!